I'm laying in the ditch and I'm staring up at the sky and I'm thinking to myself, in two days, the, the problem will be solved. Um, I'll be riding again. My tire will be fixed. But I just don't know how it's going to be solved. I can see the, I can see the ending. I just don't know how I'm going to get there. Episode 103, Motorcycle Adventure Travel Training and Tours with Rene Cormier. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis. Talking with me today is Rene Cormier. While on a trip in Kenya, Rene discovered adventure motorcycling for the first time and began considering how great it would be to travel on two wheels. He ultimately ended up riding around the world through 41 countries and 95,000 miles over the course of four and a half years. Rene is with me today to tell us about his experiences and how that trip changed his life. Rene, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Travis. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. So you had some great adventures uh, in your adult life, but let's back up a little bit and go into who Rene was as a kid. Were you an adventurous kid, or I mean, what what kind of launched you into this lifestyle? Oh, I think the, I think the adventuring. I don't think I was any more adventurous than any other kid that was on my block. We we lived near the end end of us of the subdivision, and, and my friends and I would always blast off into the woods, and our parents would tell us not to come back you know, until the streetlights came on or uh, until the moon came out. And, um, but for the rest of it, kind of just normal hacking around and playing in the woods and, and bicycles was my, my real love when I was a youngster. So that's what started the motorcycle aspect was, um, was on the two wheel pedal variety. But I do remember when I was um, 17, we, I was at home and my mom came back from from a trip somewhere, and she had said that on the radio there was an ad for flights to Mazatlan, Mexico, from where we were staying, and it was really cheap. And she said, "You know, you should go." So on Thursday we booked a ticket, and I flew Sunday. And that was—I didn't think too much of it at the time, but I had no Spanish. I had no idea what the money was. I didn't have a hotel. I didn't know where the airport was. And mom dropped me off at the airport, and I flew down. And and uh, and everything worked out well. So, being a, a parent now of two little ones, and if they were to come to me now and said they were you know seventeen years old and they want to fly to another country, and I don't know, I'd be as as quick to release the kids as my mother was. But but as these things normally happen, everything was fine and lessons learned along the way and and good times had. And that was my first international solo trip at seventeen, and uh, many more were to come. <laughs> that's great so you actually had parents that kind of kicked you out the door and said go see the the world son yeah my my mother was very keen on the kids traveling and she never could growing up on the farm as many parents of my generation or my, my parents generation did and um, she always said that if she, you know her circumstances were different she would travel more and more and more so out of the four kids um my oldest sister, I'm number two in the family. My oldest sister is the one who finished college, university, 
and got a job as a dental hygienist and got married and had kids. And that left room for the uh, next three of us to really kind of play around the world. And the bottom three, we all have sort of a running competition with how many countries we've been to. And my little sister is actually winning at a hundred and something. My little brother worked on the cruise lines for a while. So he's got quite a few. And then I've done some traveling myself. So it's actually a good friendly rivalry uh, between the lower kids, the the bottom three kids on, on how many countries we've been to and, and traveling has been a, has actually been a great part of all of our lives. That's great. So do you think if your if your mom hadn't suggested that you go on that trip to Mazatlan at, at 17 years old, do you think that you would have ended up in this lifestyle? Did you have that natural curiosity anyway, or do you think that helped you a lot? Uh, that's a great question. I I would like to think so. I mean, we have a natural curiosity about what's just over there. And I I do remember being in high school. My, my first vehicle was a 1972 Volkswagen van. <laughs> and from my uncle that I bought for 300 bucks. It was, it was an awesome little machine. And it, it taught me the value of traveling slow and going to funky places. And that's what my friends and I, after school, out of, out of high school, we would get out of school, we'd get in the van, we'd just drive around. This is northern Alberta. So there's lots of farm roads and logging roads and just places that you can go fart around on, on, um, by, by driving for a couple of hours. And when I was 18, I took that van to the Woodstock reunion in upstate New York. And um, so tra- traveling by me or moving in a more general sense, either move, moving by bicycle or moving by vehicle or moving by motorcycle, um, moving and, and traveling go quite tightly hand in hand for me. And for me, it's become a bit of a moving meditation. And, and I get quite a lot of satisfaction of movement through vehicles now and and now the motorcycle is sort of the um, the the epitome of that or the, the the pinnacle i should say of of that kind of movement because there's a lot of stuff going on on the motorcycle underneath you especially the roads that we travel here in africa and if you're able to sort of let your body deal with the roads even the changing roads the gravel roads and let your mind quietened it's, it's actually a lovely spot to be in but it's taken me a long time to get here yeah, yeah, I can understand. You know, it's funny you bring that up. I was uh I was describing that to my son yesterday. I had him out riding some some dirt trails and he just got into riding uh, last year. And uh and he likes to go to the motocross track and I said he asked me what it is I like about the trails. And I said, "You know, what I like about the trails is they're not predictable. You know, you can you go out on the trail and you have to your brain has to calculate where the you know, where the big rocks are that are going to harm you or where the ruts are, or where your tires going to do on the on the various, uh, you know, dusty or, or wet terrain, we're going to come around the corner and there's another, another situation you have to confront. And you always constantly have to figure out what to do on that terrain. As you go to a motocross track and everything's predictable, the corner's predictable, the dirt is typically predictable, even the direction of travel of all the other riders yeah. predictable. You know, so there is something very, uh, it's soothing, it's meditative, but it's, uh, you're, you're constantly calculating and working these things out as you, as you travel that way. I can, uh, I can relate to that for sure. Yeah. I'm the same way. So how did you get started on motorcycles then? I know there was a story about you seeing uh, some guys on some BMWs down in, in Kenya. Uh, was that the, the the first time or had you ridden uh, motorcycles prior to even discovering these guys? Yeah, I'd ridden motorcycles before. I was one of those kids who who 
at the local library would take out all the motorcycle magazines and take them home and 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 my dad and I had a little agreement I could do work around the house and earn a dollar an hour towards the purchase of a motorcycle and I never did make enough money on this little game of ours to to buy it <laughs> and and so I just stuck with the cheaper two-wheeled version and I I ended up just working in bike shops to I think a lot of guys work in bike shops to get deals on tires and replacement equipment because we were doing a lot of racing back then. And then when I was 21, I went with a university group to Kenya to study stuff in Kenya into the field. And that was when I saw those BMWs loaded up for overland travel. And that was the first time that I actually seen bikes that was purposed for that effect, which is moving from place A to place B with all your stuff with you. I, I had seen... I'd known bikes before, and and the ones that I'd always sought sought after were the dirt bike style, but I had known about cruisers and Harleys and trials bikes and and you know GP bikes and that kind of stuff, um, but never a traveling bike. And I thought, geez, you know that makes a lot of sense. You can certainly get to some really fantastic places with it and carry all your stuff. And I've always been a bit independent minded, so I thought, geez, this is great if you can, you know, there's no one else that you can kind of help with. Okay. And um, and so that was the first time that I'd seen the sort of overland travel thing. That was 19, 1992, I think, is the year that I went there. And um, after that, um, after that, I was still in the motorcycle, sorry, in the bicycle world. But bicycle world doesn't pay much. And so it wasn't until I kind of moved my way up in the bicycle world that I could afford a motorcycle. And I ended up buying the exact same one that I had saw in Kenyon all that years ago, 1986, um, BMW or 100 GSPD. And I kept that bike for a number of years, actually. And so all of my bikes have actually ended up to be BMW, not, not because they're the best and nothing else competes, but it, there's sort of an unrational brand allegiance to them. And, and also, there's been no compelling reason to change. The bikes have always worked well for me, and um, that's a question I get a lot. You know, if, if to do another big trip, would you take another bike? And it would be great fun to do, and I would like to do it. But um, I would have to learn a bunch of new stuff on valves and oil and, and all the other stuff. I'm not terribly mechanically minded, so I tend to stick to what I know. Yeah, once you get to know the, the, the workings of a certain manufacturer, it's like, why change? If it's working yeah. for you, you know, why not why not go out and waste that time learning new stuff? Yeah, and the other thing too that I'm I'm not a I'm not a big proponent of the idea that the, the motorcycle is a is a big, big part of a motorcycle trip. In some ways it's just kind of the motorcycle part of the adventure, and the adventure is the adventure. And I know a lot of guys who can talk horsepower and torque ratings and oil and fork oil and fork weights and spring weights and and um and that's fun for a little while but i i also know a lot of guys who who keep talking about that stuff and never pull the trigger on going on their own adventure because they don't have the perfect setup or they don't feel they have the perfect setup right and then once they get the bike sorted out then they don't have the right riding gear and then when they get that they don't have right boots and then by then the new gopro is out just in a few months so they hang on and wait for that and they end up not going at all, which is a bit of a shame. So um, as much as the good working equipment is helpful for a trip, um, I just wonder um, if people don't get too caught up on that kind of stuff. You know, we're doing, I'm just, my homework for today was organizing trade shows for next year, 2016. 
And it's funny that I'm the only person in that entire trade show, and we're doing lots of them next year, but I'm the only one in there that will say, like, don't, don't buy anything new, right? Save the money. Save the money for the adventure. People seem to forget that their disposable income is one big bag of cash. And the more that they take out of that big bag of cash for the bike or the helmet or the boots or the gear, um, the less that's left for the actual adventure itself. And we've done a pretty good job of convincing ourselves that I need that bike, I need that suit, I need that helmet and stuff. And whatever's left is, is for the trip. But I want people to take a take a breath and take take another look and revisit that because it's not necessarily so. And people are, um, sometimes I let people know that opinion and they said, well, that's kind of ballsy, eh? Because um, I work quite closely with Climb. Right. Um, and they're great folks and, and we work very closely together. And I do a lot of work with BMW and I work very closely with CD and RI helmets. And they say, well, how can you say that? And then work so closely with these manufacturers on gear. And I said, um, <laughs> I say, you know, it's, it's funny because at the end of these little presentations that we give to talking to riders, I'll, I'll often say that there's, there's two things that no one ever believes me on. One is, is, uh, take less money and more time. And the other one is don't buy new gear for a trip. Everyone agrees that it's a great idea, but it's a great idea for somebody else. And, and their trip, of course, is special, and it's theirs, and they're going to buy all the stuff that they need to buy to make sure it goes off without a hitch. And that's often new gears and new bikes and stuff. So, um, so I'm, I'm, it's actually funny. I get a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card by saying what I think is true, and then no one believing me anyway. So it all comes, <laughs> it, it all comes out in the wash. Right. <laughs> we all like the new shiny stuff. We well, all... it can be a bit of a snowball too. I mean, people, you know, think, oh, I'm going to get this bike. And then they're going to get a bunch of gear to get these side cases. They're going to weigh it down. Oh, now the bike has to be bigger. Well, the bike has to be gear, bigger. It can carry more. I got to yeah. buy more gear. And you end up with just monstrosity that you're trying to navigate. And most of us, you know, point the in the direction of dirt. And a lot of these, you know, in the third world, you're not going to be on pavement for a lot of the time. So you you don't want some big monstrosity that you're trying to navigate and and uh, risk busting up because you have so much weight on it. So I think uh, I think your point is well taken. Yeah, I'm a big proponent for, of middle sized bikes or small bikes, and and we get into it every year at the trade shows about you know which bike is perfect. And for me, it comes down to a the cost of the bike. I mean, I've never been uh, you know out of a wealthy family or or had a well financed trips, and. By by the on the cost of the trip or on the cost of a motorcycle, those big BMWs are going for what twenty twenty five thousand bucks. Right. You know, if you if you buy a bike that's half the cost, you could. My traveling cost was ten thousand bucks a year, so you could actually buy a smaller bike and travel for a year, and that's that's a pretty compelling argument right there. And in addition to that, the fuel consumption is less because a bike is small. The carrying capacity is less on the smaller bikes. And some people say, well, wait a minute, that's actually a downside. And I'll say, whoa, no, it's not. It's actually an upside. It's going to force you to right. all that, all, all, only the necessity of stuff and leave all that nonsense behind. I left with a, I left um, on the big trip with a collapsible Swedish triangular saw that folds up into, into its own little sheath. Like, it, it's amazing the stuff that you buy. The closer it is to the time of your departure, the more ridiculous it typically will be if you're buying stuff. Um, and I call that stuff the fear gear, right? You, you've, convinced, <laughs> you've convinced yourself that you you can't go on this trip without a, a small portable butane lighter, torch kind of thing, 
or a tap and die set or some other wacky thing that you convince yourself that's crucial to your trip. Yeah. Uh, and we never need it, but, um, but we've convinced ourselves that we do. Yeah, it's tough. I think that's the hardest part for all of us. We, we gear up to, to go and you, you take your first trip out there and you realize how overloaded you are. And then you get home and you, you're unpacking and you say, I never touched that clothing item or I never touched, you know, this or that. Tools are a hard part because obviously, you know, just because you didn't touch them doesn't mean you didn't need them. But spare parts, all that stuff. I mean, there's got to be an end to it at some point. And that's I think that's part of the learning experience and, and going on multiple trips and figuring out how to load yourself out. I don't think there's any other way of learning that than by carrying too much stuff time after time right. after time. I really don't. I mean, we Conceptually, it, it all makes sense to all of us, but um, in, in the real world applications, boy, we there's a lot of overloaded folks going out there. And again, it's, it's, it's an understandable thing. We, we, we're trying to not have a miserable time, and so we want to make sure that we have stuff for various you know, climatic conditions and trail conditions. and um, uh, But even now on, on these trips that we do through Africa, I, uh, my suitcase is a carry-on suitcase kind of thing. And that's everything that I need for two or three weeks. Yeah, that's what it should be. That's what it well, is. It sounds like you got dialed in. So let's talk about the, the trip around the world. You saw these guys in Kenya uh, in 1992, I think you said, and then you you – ended up going on your own trip in 2002. So what brought you to that point? Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, you're getting started and, and going on this four and a half year trip. Yeah. So I, so I bubbled up through the bicycle world and I ended up um, in Vancouver, Canada, managing a couple of bicycle shops. And then I got hired away to Rock Shocks, which is a, which is a company that a lot of people know about. It's the, they do the suspension for the mountain bikes Right. And that job was in San Jose, California. So I moved to San Jose, and that's where I bought that that fir- my first very first bike, that that 19 1986 uh, R100. Uh, and then the company moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado. So we were only in in California for 8 months and then we everyone moved to Colorado Springs and we were there for 3 years or so. And that's when I started doing little weekend trips and 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 uh, trips around town, nothing big. Now, in the summer of 2001, I, uh, pardon me, the summer of 2002, the, the company that, we were, that I was working for, RockShox, was bought by another company based out of Chicago. And the marketing positions of which I was a part of would be relocated to Chicago. And I, I, would, I would love living in Chicago. I think it's a fun town, but I don't know if I would have been a very good fit with the new marketing group. So I told them, listen, I'll, I'll help find my replacement, and um, I think I'll take to the end of the year, and then I'll leave. Like, it's a pretty good time for me to leave. And so they said, yeah, okay, you can do that. And I decided I'm going to take all my vacation, and I'm going to head off to Alaska for a month. And and this is where everything started to cascade. So um, up to Alaska for a month, and... Um, when I was up there, I met two guys from South America, also in BMWs, and we got to talking, and they were they were explaining why were they up there. I mean, it's kind of the the the, the initial conversation that we all have at the gas station. And I told them that I was up there because I'm taking a bit of vacation, and then I'm going back and basically just quit my job, and I'll I'll work there for a few more months, and then then I haven't decided what I'd need to do. 
And they told me that they were on a, a year sabbatical from their jobs in South America. And they kind of jokingly said, you know, you should just do the same thing. And, and I didn't really take it as a joke. I thought, you know what, that's actually a hell of an idea. And, and it, was just, it was just big and crazy enough that it's, it really appealed to me. I'm, I've had a bit of a history of biting off crazy, silly stuff and just seeing if I could give it a go. And so when I left them, that was going to be the plan. I would go take one year off, go to South America, come back to Canada. And and that would have been the end of it. But at some point, leaving Alaska and arriving back in Colorado Springs, I thought that maybe this was going to be the one time in my life where, where I would be able to pull off the big trip. You know, um, it, it's the trip that we all talk about and we all dream about and we all scheme about in the garages, but we, we never do it. And And the list of reasons why we never do it is very long from available cash, available time, family, career, all that kind of stuff. But for me, a lot of those reasons weren't really in the play anymore. You know, so I'm about to quit my job. Um, I had just started dating a girl, so there wasn't really a family or, or, or those kind of pressures. Money might have been an issue, um, but I thought I could sell the house and sell all my gear and make a bit of money that way. But I really didn't know how much a, a trip like that would cost. Um, and so I got home and I just decided I'm going to give it a go, you know. And I, I put up all my stuff for sale and I made 35000 bucks, which isn't a lot of money, but it's all the money that I had from the sale of the house and cars and bikes and miscellaneous crap. And from my research on the internet, I've realized that a lot of people who were traveling, and, and there weren't a lot putting their story on the net back in 2002. So it was a bit difficult to find out what this thing was going to be like as it unfolded, but I was finding guys who were doing it on $30 a day, and that's all in um, daily living costs. So fuel, camping or accommodation, a bit of internet time, some food, a beer, that kind of stuff. And I figured if they're going to do it for 30, I think I can do it for 25. And so I made it that as my little scheduled amount of money to to spend every day and i just started doing the math 25 dollars a day over one year is 9100 something so let's call it 10000 so it's going to cost me 10000 a year to travel i've got 35 so i've got 3 years to get around the world and then i started and that's how that's how the trip began Man, that's really appealing when you break it down to that. You like you said, thirty-five thousand isn't all that much money, but that's uh, it's three, three and a half years of of travel and not working. That's yeah. uh, I, I think that would be appealing to anybody. And and a lot of people who I meet on the road who are doing big trips often are are in better or were in a better financial state. Either they had more money to begin with, or they had some passive income coming in, either investments or a house or something that they had rented out and every month they get a little a little stipend from their investments and and that wasn't that wasn't my situation um i just had a lump of cash and i the less i spent it or the more slowly i spent it the longer i could travel and that right. had that had interesting ramifications for being on the road and buying stuff subsequent to being on the road because what ended up happening is if I needed to replace a jacket, like for example, early on in the trip, I hit a deer and I slid on my back on the on the road, and it 
it uh, tore away all the kind of the upper shoulder area of across both shoulders. And it was a jacket from Aerostitch. And I looked at a new jacket and it was six or seven hundred dollars. And I thought, geez, you know, I just I just don't have that money. And so I had I bought it to a boot place and they they put a piece of heavy fabric over the top and sewed it in and made it look kind of normal. And all of the decisions for for repairing or replacing or fixing or buying came down to the simple equation of how much is it going to cost and how many days on the road am I, do I have to give up to afford this thing? And when you put it in that equation, almost never do I buy the thing. I'll always gravitate towards having more time on the road. And I think that's a pretty common mindset for travelers who who aren't fussed about you know, their, their gloves having a hole in them or their jeans a bit faded or patched or, or that kind of stuff because the, the stuff, the gear, isn't what's creating memories or creating experiences for you. It's, it's the fact that you're actually out there. And that kind of comes full circle to reinforcing my ideas about not having a, a new motorcycle or the fanciest LED lights or all that other kind of stuff because, A, nobody cares. Once you get outside of your little world with, with your riding buddies, Nobody cares what you have when you're in Guatemala or Chile or Pakistan. But you just got to no, I think there. that, yeah, that point is, is very well taken. I, unfortunately, I think we live in a, a society where we're, we're way more apt to buy the new item instead of uh, spruce up or, or fix and repair the item that, that went, you know, went awry. Um, I think that, Going out on uh, on these travels is something that everybody should do only if it teaches them that to learn finances finances in that sense um, you know if you don't get to learn it in that sense you don't realize what you're giving up by spending that little bit of income every day on some little item I yeah. think that's a really good point I don't know anyone who's done big trips and comes back to the default world that's the kind of the world we jokingly call it um Without a, a, a marked change in how they see consumerism and what you're spending your money on. And how, how long did you need to work in order to pay for that thing? Um, you start, start looking at it in terms of that. Uh, uh, you know, how many days of your life did you have to work in order to pay for that car or that house or that in-ground pool or whatever the, whatever the item might be in it? It uh, can be quite uh, startling. Right. Absolutely. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. Bent Gate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bent Gate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bent Gate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. 
Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. So 95,000 miles, 41 countries. What was one of the, the coolest experiences that you had on this trip? Oh, man, that we could talk about this all night. And, <laughs> and this is actually better over a fire, of course, the campfire. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of them, the experiences are um, just they're so varied. The problem with, with thinking of an answer on a big trip like this is I'm trying to go through my head for, for Central America, South America, Africa, Middle Asia, Mongolia. And there's places, there's, there's, there's things that have happened in all of those places which would make the cut for the answer. And I think that the, the value of the trip for me in hindsight is experiential changes that I've, that I've had to myself in the way that I view the world. And, and some of that stuff we've already talked about, you know, sort of a, um, the way that it's kind of forced me to to look at um, you know consumerism and the things that I have, the, the amount of stuff that we use day to day, the amount of money, the kind of car that we drive, all little stuff. Um, those are lessons that that were were learned, I guess, from being out of the system or out of the default world for a number of years and. That's kind of a cool experiment. It's like flying to another planet and then coming back to your own planet and thinking, geez, this one's screwed up. But you've got to live in it. So, um, And as far as riding experiences, man, I, I've had you know, really fortunate experiences to meet a lot of great folks. That's, that's an easy one. I, I would say you know, this trip was, was 1,500 days long, give or take. And there can't be more than a dozen days where something cool did not happen from, from a local person, either a random act of kindness or a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or directions. And, and um, there's just too many to count. And this, this is one of the reasons why I enjoy listening to stories about guys who've been guys and girls who have been on longer travels, as opposed to folks who, who do a weekend trip. Not that I'm bashing the weekenders, not at all, but what ends up happening is that the weekend trip often comes back on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening and what they end up talking about are the things that gone wrong on the trip. You know, the flat tire or the bad weather or the speeding ticket or the campfire that they couldn't light or whatever. And on the long trips, there's so much cool stuff that happens and positive stuff that happens that those people often never get around to talking about the gun they saw or the traffic accident or the the, the time they got pickpocketed because those little negative insignificant events are, are overshadowed and overwhelmed and, and really just hammered into the ground by how many cool stuff that has happened. And um, it's one of the reasons I don't spend any time on ADV Rider because it's um, I just get a bit depressed reading all that stories. <laughs> well, I think that's, at least in my mind, and I haven't ridden around the world, so maybe my uh, maybe my mindset would change. But part of the adventure for me is when you have to solve 
challenges, you know, when you're challenged in these moments and, and these are part of what makes the, the adventure. So, you know, not to dwell on bad things, but that stuff does come up and you, you get to have the opportunity to get yourself out of that bind. Absolutely. You know, those but, are, those here, stories are interesting. But here's the funny thing for me. So before you, before folks leave on their little trip and that they prepare for, they buy the right gear and the right tools and the right camelback and the right helmet and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then they do the trip and, and you're right, things go sideways because that's traveling by motorcycle. And, um, and then they get home and there's laughs and tears and, and whatever. But the thing that, what happens is that the thing that they're most proud of are the things that have gone wrong and, and they had to solve. And that's awesome, except if that's the thing that they're most proud of, don't you think that they should, they should actually not prepare for these trips? They should actually find a really cheap old motorcycle and go with no money and, and they head off into the darkest part of the sky that, where the storm clouds are brewing. And guaranteed, they'll get stories. It's, it's sometimes people are looking for adventure, but not really. Um, and it happen, if it just happens to happen to them, then they're actually happen, they ha they're happy it, it has found them. But um, sometimes people go out for an adventure with a small A, not a big A. But I agree with <laughs> yeah, you. That's true. <laughs> a little bit of adventure, good. Lots of adventure, too much. <laughs> that's right. Until it's over. And then looking back in hindsight and telling the stories at the bar, then it's, then it's awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what did you, you learn from the, this time on the road? Obviously we talked about, you know, the, the finances and, and the mindset, but what are some of the, the tips that you would give people uh, if they were dreaming or truly planning to set out on their own? Uh, there's lots of them. The, the biggest one I can offer is, um, well, there's, there's probably three or four that I can think of on the top of my head that, that are commonly recited. Um, one is, is the world is a much nicer place than they're led to believe. That, that's um, probably the one that should stick with people the most, I suppose. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and, and it's true. It, I'm not making it up. Um, you know, so media is, uh, is not there for your well-being. It's there to sell stuff. And so one of the things that I tell people, if, if they want to go on a big trip, sell your TV. Like that's the first thing that should go. And put that money into your traveling fund. And the second thing that, that is to be realized is that there's going to never be a great, perfect time to leave. We had touched on this a little bit earlier with the, waiting for the new bike or waiting for the new camera or the new suit. Um, there will always be a reason not to go. And halfway through my trip, I came back to Canada because I had run out of money. Basically, I had spent two and a half years going from Canada to South America, having a great time, but just not traveling very fast. So I had to come back and work for a year and then ship the bike to Africa for another two years. And 11 months into my stay in Canada, I thought, geez, you know, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be better if I just worked for one more year and then I'll have that much more money and then I could buy this and this and then I can do that and that. And, th and I caught myself thinking, yeah, that is actually the trap. That is, you know, a little bit is good and more is better. More is better. More is better. And, and so it, it was important for me to realize that no, you 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 need a you need a drop dead date or a, a line in the sand date. And then I thought, okay, I'm just going to tell everyone that I know that I'm leaving on this date. And then it's really embarrassing if you have to back out. And, and really use peer pressure to your advantage and tell all of your friends, especially the ones that don't you don't like very much or they don't like you, and and they'll hammer you if you don't go on this trip. So 
give yourself a hard date and go and, and realize that it's not going to be perfect. There, there will be insufficiencies in your packing. There will be insufficiencies in your knowledge about how to repair the motorcycle. There will be insufficiencies in all of the stuff that you thought you needed to have done, first aid course, how to build the motor course, how to do the valve, how to do wheel bearings, how to tension a chain, how to put a master link in. All of that stuff that is good to know but not critical to know for going on the trip. I know a lady who, who was 53 years old, grandmother, shipped her bike, Yamaha Sika 750, I think, to somewhere in the Far East and went all the way around the world. She didn't have a tool to her name. Wow. She didn't know where the battery was. She didn't know where anything was. But what she had the ability to do was – if the bike had a problem, and actually she didn't have a flat tire through the whole thing, and it's actually great luck on her part, but when there was a problem with the bike, she parked it, she went into the biggest group of people she could find, she went to the oldest guy there and, and took him by the arm and says, come, you're helping, helping me solve it. <laughs> That's great. And it worked. I don't know if it would work for guys. We, um, right. we hate asking for help, um, but we've kind of forgotten that the rest of the world actually operates that way. Ask for help and give help. Um, so that would be lesson number two and lesson number three or tip number three for people wanting to do big trips. Um, yeah, take, take more time. Um, the money, take as much money as you can, but, uh, don't sacrifice the time for the money. Uh, the, the, if you have the time, um, the, the money stuff will work itself out. And, and my budget was 25 bucks a day. But that comes with a couple of little asterisks beside it. And, and, you know, it's easy to do a long trip on 25 a day, but it's almost impossible to do a short trip on 25 a day because you amortize that, that cost over the number of days. And I know that if I had traveled big in a, in, a, in a week, for example, with lots of fuel and maybe a couple of hotels, and I know that the, this month I, I might be over budget, which is the soft budget. It doesn't really matter what the number comes in it, but just the, the less I spend, the longer I can travel then I will find a campsite that's a free campsite near someplace cool and I would stay there for the week. And I would do bike maintenance and catch up on my journal and walk around and hang out and, um, and, and try to get the average daily running cost to be under 25 bucks a day. And it was really, really lovely. And you run into a lot of places that um, you start flirting with the, the, the exit time for your visa for that country and that's kind of the sign to tell you that you must move on. You know, you're given 45 days or 30 days or 90 days in a country and keep an eye on that. And then uh, when your time is up, move to the next country. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, the fact that you can, um, like you said, amortize the, the cost out, because if you're going down to, you know, to Africa, you have to ship your bike there. That's costly. But yep. if you're only doing that for a couple of weeks, a month, you know, the, the, the cost of that over those four weeks is quite expensive. But if you can average that out over years, uh, it makes a huge difference. I ran into a lot of people who are doing that more on the, on the South America side where they would come, uh, you know, they'd travel for two months and they would park the bike somewhere and they'd fly back home to wherever it was, the, the States or in Europe somewhere. And, and then they would come out the next year and they would ride for another two months and park the bike and we, we can only ride as our life circumstances dictate. And, and for people with more concrete lives than I had, with jobs and families and kids and wives and the rest, um, you know, you, you can only do what you can do. So um, I thought that was actually pretty cool of them to, 
um, to, to keep at it for so many years. Yeah, absolutely. They figured out how to work within their confines. Absolutely. That's good. So let's talk about your book and what it is you're doing down in, in South Africa. Well, the book, the, the book was a bit of a hind, uh, sort of a late in the game kind of idea. Um, this trip never existed to have any sort of commercial element to it. Right. And there was a lot of, a lot of time, you know, the first three, I would say the first three years anyway, this trip was, um, sort of a selfishly guarded secret kind of thing for me. And, and I imagined myself to, to finish this trip and then come back to Canada and park the bike and take all the stickers off and those big traveling tanks and, and carry on and not tell anyone because it wasn't for anyone's benefit. This, this little loop around the world. <laughs> it was just yours. It was just mine, right? It was, it was, it was entirely an exercise to see how far I could go with the money I had and my wits and to have a, have a fun little time. And near the end of the trip near Dubai, which is now three quarters of the way through the trip. I, I had started realizing that, part of the reason I was having such a grand time and a successful time and a safe time and all the rest of it was that other travelers were helping me out along the way, whether it's advice on which border crossing to go to, or maybe a floor to sleep in. Um, my, my successes were really their, their hard work that they'd pass along to me. So I'm, I'm starting to think, geez, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't do something to kick the ball down the road a bit. Um, through that, I, you know, up until that point, I had started writing a little column for a, a web-based magazine up here every month or so. And I thought, geez, I wonder if I just string those together and start piecing this story together that I can make a book out of it. And near the end of the, um, near the end of the, uh, the trip itself, I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a go. And so I self-published, I wrote and self-published the book, um, whose full name is the university of gravel roads, global lessons from a four year motorcycle adventure. And, um, like, like traveling around the world, I had no idea what self publishing entailed, but I asked a lot of dumb questions to smart people and we, we hammered it out. And, um, it was printed in 2010 and, and five months later it won the bronze medal in New York city for independently published books, um, which was super cool. And uh, went down to New York City to to receive the medal and stuff. And that was going to be the end of this little adventure of mine. Part of the, the, the what had happened on the trip is when I was in South Africa in 2006 or 2007, I had met this uh, cute little girl named Colette, and we kept in touch after I left South Africa. Um, and now two years later, I arrived back in Canada, write the book. The book is out being printed. And now she's calling and saying, well, this, we, we need to sort out what we're doing here. I mean, this is a ridiculous long-distance relationship. So I flew back to South Africa, um, met with her and a bunch of friends, and met some other friends who, over some beers, we figured that, you know what, I think we could probably sell African motorcycle trips to people who live in North America. Because over here, Africa is such a long way to get to. Um, and there, that carries a lot of misinformation as well about how, how difficult the riding is and where are you going to get bikes and how's the support going to go. So in 2010, 
Is that right? 2010, yeah. We, we offered, started offering motorcycle tours in Africa. And that was with two tours that year, 2010. And I'm happy to say it's, it's grown, it's grown as, as fast as we could keep up every year. And we're up to eight tours now in wow. south, southern Africa. And we started in Mongolia last year as well. And um, South America, we'll be in South America for six weeks next, next year, scouting some, some fun rides over there. So it's, um, it's, it's kind of a cool thing to look in hindsight about how this whole thing has evolved because there's no business plan. There's no, any business person would, would call this ridiculous um, for, you know, how, how much money comes into the, the, the business and how it should stay afloat and, and how we're, I'm a bit averse to debt. And, and so nothing we do in the company allows us to take on any debt. And, and that means we, we don't grow very fast, but it also means we sleep really, we, we sleep really well at night. Yeah, that's that, right. You know, if everything goes to pot tomorrow, we're fine. You know, we're really fine. And part of that help comes from living on $25 a day. And Clet's kind of a frugal girl as well. So we're not afraid of, I'm not going to say poverty, but I'm going to say we're not afraid of living with much money. And that's allowed us to let the, the business grow. And our incomes are low, but that's fine actually that's that's not a problem for us at all and the company is going to continue to grow and the payout will come and um that little strategy although not recommended by any business journal on the face of the planet um works for us and uh we've got um um two little boys now a 3 year old just celebrated his third birthday yesterday and we have a 5 week old as well <laughs> and so our, our family lifestyle and dynamics is kind of starting. You know, I'm 45, Colette's 39, and um, we're, we're starting where a lot of the people that I ride with are kind of on the opposite side of that, where they are in their late 40s or 50s, and their kids are now in high school or in college or getting out of college, and they're looking to, to ride. So um, kind of fun dynamics on, on where we are in life between, between the two groups. Yeah. Well, you guys have figured out how to do something that you love. You figured out how to do it frugally. And I think the neatest thing is you're going to raise your children to get off on that, that right foot, uh, you know, to, to do what you guys have figured out already for them. That's a big bonus. I think so. I think traveling is traveling with kids is, um, fantastic. The, um, Colette and the boys will come out to Mongolia with us next year. Um, not that I think they're going to remember much. They're, they're quite little. But um, but they've they've got to be able to pick up some of the little some of the little underlying things like when when we pack you you can't take all your toys right even as we travel with the family to all the shows all the bike shows um, Jacques who is the oldest one at three he's got his his little um, pail full of toys and his pail only carries <laughs> so much right so if he wants a bigger toy or more toys then something's got to come out of that box because there's 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 a physical limitation to how many toys he can have and and that's a concept he gets and and he and we do the same with our luggage and our clothing and our luggage it's not as if we don't want more stuff there we cannot bring more stuff because there's no more room in the car for this stuff yeah you physically kind of, limited yourself there's yeah, a there's a real benefit to that absolutely absolutely yeah so it's actually it's a fun thing to play with <laughs> that's great
Hot Air Expeditions has been rated best balloon flight in Phoenix by Fodor's Travel for the past 20 years in a row and offers morning hot air balloon experiences in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area daily and year-round. Get whisked away and witness breathtaking views of the Sonoran Desert from 7,000 feet. Sunset flights are also available seasonally, November through March. Ready to cruise the skies? Give them a call at 1-800-831-7610 or visit them online at www.hotairexpeditions.com. Winter is just around the corner. Do you have the outdoor performance wear that you need? Shed the layers and keep the warmth with Sport Hill Performance running, skiing, and outdoor apparel. Sport Hill gear is worn by Olympic champions and elite athletes. Independently owned since 1985, Sport Hill is passionate about clothing for the sports you love. Okay, so where should people go to find more about you and your book, as well as your tours? So most of the information is all centers around Renadian.com. And Renadian, as an aside, um, comes from my RockShocks days when uh, me as a Canadian guy was in a meeting one time talking some something or other, and uh, apparently I said car or out or about or some word that sounds funny to Americans' ears. <laughs> and, and one of my colleagues says, ah, he's speaking flipping Renadian again. And that's I thought, great. That's an awesome word, and I'll use it somewhere. Anyway, so it's Rene plus Canadian all mixed up into one word. And it's, uh, very cool. Uh, yeah, R-E-N-E-D-I-A-N.com. And on there is uh, mostly that website centers around um, the, the touring that we do in, in Africa and Mongolia. And the, there's, there is a page for the book there. And the other easy thing for the book is just to get onto Amazon and, and go through there. Okay. And I think that you guys, uh, I think you're still doing it. If uh, When you jump onto Renadian.com, it's either that or the book page, uh, which is universityofgravelroads.com. Um, if you sign up for the, the mailing list, you get one of the chapters, the Africa chapter. You're still doing that, correct? That is correct. That's off the website. Yeah, so Renadian.com and um, one of those little presents that we offer to folks who sign up for the newsletter you get Very the cool. chapter for free yep i just got mine the other day actually i haven't <laughs> i have yet to read it but i'm, I'm getting there <laughs> i have a long list of, of books these spoiler days. alert the guy lives in the end <laughs> that's good to know if you haven't figured that one out <laughs> all right so what inspires you what what is it that that or who is it either one that you look up to that that drives you I don't know if it's if, if it's a person so much as as it is an experience. I mean, I I get a lot of fun by seeing people's eyes open up. And so most of my writing is in Africa, so most of these stories are African centric. But um, seeing people's eyes open up at seeing wild animals for the first time, if they've never been to Africa before, or if they've seen open spaces and gravel roads and epic riding like we we have over here, or when we stop in the afternoon for beer or, or when the day is finished, we have beer in the bar um, that people come up and they see, you know, that's the best day of riding that I've ever had. That stuff really turns me on. And that's the whole reason why we're continuing to do this stuff. And it's not a, it's not a 
a suck-up ploy or a, or whatever. It is really a, um, a cool thing to be able to deliver. Uh, not not many. I can't think of many jobs where where you're actually in so much control over having people having so much fun. And the difficulty is is the, the fun that we have on the road in Africa is is very difficult to articulate and to put into words. So that when you're in a trade show in Des Moines, Iowa, it, in the middle of winter, and you're trying to convince someone, yeah, but it's going to be like this, and the writing's like that, and we stay in these places, and we eat this kind of cool stuff. Um, that's a tricky thing to do. And I can't say that I perfected it yet. So um, so when it, when people do come over and they, and they trust that we're not going to run away with their money and the, the company, someone's going to be there to pick them up at the airport and all that kind of stuff. Um, to have them come out and, and really have their eyes opened up in a, in a, in a wonderful, safe riding environment just, that just happens to be speckled with elephants and giraffes and rhinos and the rest. That's, that's really cool. And at the moment, <coughs> pardon me, that's, that's all there is for us. And having the youngsters here uh, as well, um, Seeing stuff through their eyes is, is really quite something for a 45-year-old crusty guy like myself. So, <laughs> so between, between, the, between, the old, between the old guys seeing stuff for the first time and the new guys seeing stuff for the first time, I'm, my head's in a spin. But it's, it's, a oh, very, very cool. it's a very cool position to be in, yeah. I'm a, a very fortunate guy. Yeah, that's got to be a lot of fun. Well, you come across as the, the genuine Article. So when you say you enjoy, you know that that's what inspires you is to see people, uh, see people's light eyes light up. Uh, it, it comes across as true. I I completely believe you. So yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I and it is. And and so what we're hoping to do is, uh, you know, roll this into Mongolia, roll it into South American trips. Um, it it um, I do know that my life, you know, over the last ten years has been a bit weird with, um, you know, taking off big chunks of time, and I know. That um, that a lot of folks often comment that you know it's um, you know they'd love to have the lifestyle and and have the um, the ability to to go on big trips. So I know that I've actually been very very fortunate in in pulling the trigger. I don't think my circumstances were that much different from other people, but I had that one little thing that that said just go and and I acted on it and went, and that seemed to have made all the difference and. Um, and so telling stories about traveling around the world, um, again, around campfire, hey, that's, that's where these stories are, are most appropriate. Um, right. It's, it's something that I am very much enjoy doing. So, yeah, yeah I hope to, I hope to continue, continue to do it for, for a while yet. Well, I hope you do. <laughs> so speaking of stories, can we wrap up uh, the interview with a funny story? Do you have something that uh, was pretty comical that happened to you on the road? I'm, I'm sure there must be. Uh, let me think of one. Hmm. Should, you want to narrow it down by continent? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Funny story in Africa. <laughs> Funny story in Africa. Um I, it's, it's, I don't have a funny story in Africa, the one that I'm thinking of anyway, but it's um it, it's kind of an interesting story for me. Uh, New Year's Eve, I'm traveling in the Karoo Desert, which is not a very populated place, and I get a flat tire. And and flat tires happen quite a bit to me, so 
I proceed to stop the bike and get off and take the rear. It's always in the rear, hey? And right, uh, take it off and start stomping on it to get the, the bead off. And for the life of me, I cannot get this thing off. So, um, so I put the bike on. And I, I ride now as fast as I dare with this flat tire on the back, hoping to heat it up and, and break the bead that way. It still doesn't break. And there's nobody coming along to, to come and help me. So despite all of my efforts and little tricks about putting the bike on, on the center stand and levering over the side stand and everything else, I put the rear tire back on the bike and I go to sleep in the ditch because there's, there's kind of nothing else to do. And, and it's a fun story for me because it's, um, I'm laying in the ditch and I'm staring up at the sky and I'm thinking to myself, in, in two days, this thing will be solved. The, the problem will be solved. Um, I'll be riding again. My tire will be fixed. But I just don't know how it's going to be solved. I can see the, I can see the ending. I just don't know how I'm going to get there. And, and I think about that often, actually, when I'm wondering how is a situation going to develop or get, get solved. And so I'm laying there, and about midnight, then um, I see a truck or a car headlights coming down the road. So I scramble up to my feet, and I push the bike into the intersection of, of these two dirt roads. And I put the headlight on, and I shine it in the direction of the oncoming truck. Luckily, it was a truck, a little, little pickup truck. And these are all local farmers dressed in their Christmas whites, white pants, <laughs> white jackets, white shoes, the whole happy toot. And uh, I convinced them that I need a ride and uh, it would be good for them to put the bike in the back of the car and, or the back of the truck and let's continue down the road. And I, it didn't matter which direction I was going. I just needed to get somewhere a bit more civilized. Right. So we get the bike loaded up. Now it's one o'clock in the morning. We're traveling down the road. It's flipping cold. Hey, it's um, middle of the night. There's no moon out. The stars are shining. I'm thinking this is awesome. I'm going to get this problem solved. And then now the truck has got a truck has got a flat tire. Like the tires on these farm trucks are not great to begin with. And now with my heavy ass in there and the, and the motorcycle back there, Everybody knows that it's the extra weight that has caused the problem. So since I'm dirty anyway and been sleeping in the ditch, I offer to get the spare tire out and undo the flat tire and put on the thing. But, you know, as a, as a new person solving a situation that has been done a million times by the local people, you're, you're just in the way. So I let them do all the changing stuff and they're getting greasy and dirty and the spare is underneath the truck. You know, it lowers down on the chain, that kind of spare. Right. So they're filthy, filthy, filthy. By the time they get the spare wheel on and the, the flat tire in the back with the motorcycle on us. And another hour later, we arrive at the, at the little town. Two horse town, both of them are sleeping. Not a soul stirring except for the hotel. The, the owners of the hotel were still awake having a, late family dinner. So I tried to give the money to the little my little ride. They wouldn't take a thing, but they just dropped me off, me and my gear, in, in the, the one paved road in town. And I pushed my bike woof, 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 back to the hotel. I poke my head and say, hey, had a motorcycle problem. I'm going to sleep in your, sleep in your um, parking lot. Put the tent up, slept. And the next day, not a creature was stirring. Hey? And even the goats were sleeping. The chickens were sleeping. There was nothing happening in this little town. 
And eventually I find someone who will open up the shop and, and fix a flat tire for me. And um, it's, it's not a funny ha-ha story per se, but one that I've thought about many, many times as far as um, how are things going to get solved out? Everyone's curious about how problems are going to get solved, can they see in the future, all that stuff. And um, and the story doesn't really have an ending other than the, the tire was fixed and then I carried on. Um, but the amount of times that I think back onto laying into that ditch and wondering, how is this problem going to get solved? And I know it will be. I just don't know how I'm going to get there. And, and with, right. each, with each subsequent um, action, so by the time I got into the back of that pickup truck, all the other solutions or possible solutions for, for solving that problem have now gone away. You know, waking up the next morning and trying it again and popping the bead or um, just riding the, riding the bike out on the flat tire. They, they've all gone away. And uh, it just narrows and narrow, narrows down, narrows down, narrows down to the time when you actually get the problem solved. And we we use that story quite a bit in the business, and uh, it's a fun one. Um, it's not the real real funny one you were looking for, but I'll save that one for a campfire. No, that's fine. I I love those stories though, and that's that's kind of it goes back to my my bit about seeking the adventure because you know I've been in plenty of those situations where. You're struggling. You're not sure how you're going to get out of your situation. You're not sure how you're going to fix your problem, but you can see ahead and you're at peace knowing that you will, in fact, get out of that that problem and it's going to turn into just a fun story to tell in the end, you know, but but being in that moment and having that peace with the with the situation is is some of the coolest experience that you have out there. I agree, and I think that's the thing that we we really miss in society because we we struggle so much to be Without that stuff, I mean, we work right. very hard, we we work very hard at making sure that nothing is disrupted in our lives. Everything's on time. The power's on. The lights are on. The car works. Um, and then when something does go funky, we freak out because we're not used to things going sideways. And and for there, you know, you just hope that you are near a farmer of some type because they're they're continually used to things going wrong and pumps going wrong and, and tractors breaking down. And farmers are the most resourceful, clever-thinking people that I know. And, and and the more times that we get ex- exposed to that, the better it's going to be. I, I agree with you completely. But we are trying to avoid it, and that's not entirely helpful, I think. Yep, I absolutely agree. Well, Renee, I really appreciate your time on this. I enjoyed hearing your story, and uh, I look forward to reading the book. I can't wait to to hear the whole story about it. And uh, who knows? Maybe you get back into Colorado, look me up. We'll go find a campfire so I can hear the rest. Guaranteed. Sign me up. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. You take care, and I appreciate it. My pleasure. Cheers. Would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us. Also, take a minute and help us spread the word about the Adventure Sports Podcast. Do us a favor and go on to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. Everything helps. Thanks for being a listener. Listener.